All right, everybody, welcome back to Colony Confidential, the episode you've been waiting for, mergers and acquisitions with Paul Giannamori from the Potomac Group. This is Joe, Joey Buns. It's from Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. This is Ed Sheehan once again for Colony Confidential. A very exciting day today. Uh, we're going to learn something, um, probably a lot, about mergers and acquisitions. I want to thank Paul for giving us the time to enlighten us, and we look forward to having some fun. Remember, this is season two, coming out with a bang. I hope you guys don't kill me off in this season. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So the main thing is, the, the first question is, how did you end up selling pest control business? That's a fantastic question. And Joe, as I've told you before, I, you know, I wasn't a young man aspiring to get into this line of business. Background on me, I graduated from, you know, I was in, in college actually up at uh, Cornell and Ithaca. And I went on a family vacation for, for Christmas for, in Milan one year. And we, we had Christmas and kind of on Christmas Eve, I kind of walked around and uh, out in the town and, and I met a guy who was looking to import combine attachments from the U.S. to, to Italy at the time, actually. And I don't know how old I was. I must have been 18 years old, 19 maybe. And at the time, we lived in, in Chicago. And in a lot of these farms, this is back in the 90s, a lot of farms are going out of business. And so I, I decided I was going to go out to farm auctions and buy combine attachments and export them to Spain and Italy. And so that's what I did. And I did that throughout college. And I didn't go through recruiting or look to get a job. I uh, I started my own business. It was I remember it was called Global Resources. And I had a partner I went to school with. And we bought mechanical uh, farming equipment at auctions on the cheap and sent them to Europe. One thing that I, I guess I didn't realize at the time is, I was flying back and forth from the U.S. to Europe for about 75 bucks round trip because my father was an airline mechanic that worked for American Airlines. And when I graduated school, I was no longer a dependent. So now I had to pay full fare. So that blew a hole in my P&L and, and that was it. I, that business was out of business. And so in the late 90s, we had the, the tech bubble and the investment banking boom. And so I had no idea what investment banking was, but all the cool kids were doing it. And it paid a hell of a lot of money. So here I am maybe four or five months from graduation with no job. And I put my resume in and at a bunch of different firms and I hired on with Lehman Brothers. That's no longer with us. I went to Lehman, uh, worked in London for a few months and I, I really wanted to be in New York. I'm an Italian national. And so it was easy for them to send me to work in the common European market. And, uh, I didn't want to be in London. So I ended up quitting I met some credit Swiss guys on, on a transaction. I quit, went over to CSFB at the time, worked in Zurich and really wanted to get to the States. And I really wanted to be in Silicon Valley. It was a tech boom, man. I mean, everything, you know, companies were going public left and right, you know, Amazon, Netscape, all this stuff. And so I joined Frank Quattrone's tech group out in California doing technology M&A. That went on for a few years. And then I uh, got a job offer I couldn't refuse with a private equity firm called American Capital, uh, which was based in DC, but they, you know, they had office in Paris and Chicago, New York, Dallas. And they were they became the largest publicly traded private equity firm or buyout shop in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I worked on the buy side. We bought companies like Piper Aircraft and Case Logic and a variety of kind of middle market mundane businesses. And one day the guy who hired me actually, you know, he was in his early 40s at the time. And he was a guy who built up a, a, a real solid amount of wealth and 
he was working 24 seven and he just freaked out and said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go play tennis. And he clearly had the resources to do that. When he left, I said, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go off and do something else. So a buddy of mine from Cornell and I got together and we sat down with Mark. He was my own boss. And I said, help us set up our own firm and we can do M&A advisory work. And uh, he did that. He staked us. And, uh, this was in the early 2000s. And we focused on advising private equity firms on disposing their portfolio companies. And, you know, while I was out and about doing deals, somebody referred me to a colleague or a friend, or I don't remember the exact story, but somebody that owned a pest control business. And they were already in process with Surface Master Terminex at the time, and they needed help on due diligence. And it was local to me. I mean, it was we were in Philly at the time. It was right outside of Philly. And so I, uh, I went there and helped those folks out. And next thing I know, one thing after another, you know, the guy took a liking to me and referred me to all of his buddies. And then I, I kind of looked around the industry and said to myself, well, all my smart friends are doing cool and sexy stuff. They're all in you know, IT staffing, software, kind of heavy tech industries. And I looked at pest control and I said, you know, it's boring, mundane, blue collar, and there's, there's no one out here really advising these shareholders on very important transactions. So that was it. I did a few pest control deals and one led to another. And we opened up a, a, a valuation group and started doing valuations for gift and estate tax purposes, divorces. And next thing you know, that's, that's how I got into it. We've been doing that essentially from, I think, about 2003 to present. And it's not exclusively what I do. I think it's like for me, I, I do a lot of advisory projects. I do privatization work for governments in the Middle East. I do a lot of different things in, in former Soviet bloc countries. I'm, I'm actually down in Latin America. I'm in South America today working on pest control down here. But uh, I, I have been fortunate enough that I can choose engagements that I think are super exciting to me and where I can really provide value. So I don't do 100% pest control, although in, in the recent five years, just where the market's been, I, I'm spending a, a good 90% of my time on pests. I think it's important for me to always do things outside of pests because you know, the world's very sophisticated and guys like me, we learn when we do different things. I mean, you just do pest control deals all the, all the time. You, you don't learn new things. I, I want to learn very complicated transaction structures and far off areas of the world, which helps me provide value to, uh, to our clients. So you asked a very short question. You got a very long answer. So right now, would you say pest control? You said 90% with the other deals you've done is pest control up there because the multiples are crazy. When I, I talk to a lot of people that aren't in pest control and it, when I say people are getting two and a half, three times. They say, oh, of the EBITDA or EBITDA, however you want to say it. And I'm like, yeah. no, they're getting that of the annual revenue and they can't believe it. So in the other M&A stuff that you do, are you seeing similar multiples or is it a completely different structure than pest control? Fantastic question. And I would say on the one hand, pest control asset prices are extremely inflated, but not to the extent that you would think of. And so what I mean by that is when you talk to a lot of kind of small business, small to mid-sized businesses around town, they're not experiencing the same asset price inflation that, that pest control companies are. Now, when you look at big, bigger businesses, and when I talk about middle market, I'm talking about like kind of 250 million to a billion in transaction value, asset prices are up across the board. Here's where owners of pest control businesses benefit from what's going on. I mean, essentially, when I look at the pest control industry, we've had what I call a re-rating in the public market. So if we think about 
how these businesses are bought and sold by the investing public. They're done on, on multiples of, of earnings and EBITDA and EBITDA. So those are kind of three metrics. And so historically, companies like Rollins, who has always been the darling of the space, has, has really traded in kind of the nine to 12 times EBITDA range. And so what has gone on now is we had the financial crisis. A lot of people lost a lot of money. And during times of panic like that, you have flight to quality. And so what we saw is a big rotation into industries that are perceived as less risky. And so after the financial crisis, money poured into the public markets, the, the publicly traded pest control businesses, and Rollins was re-rated. And so what that means is Rollins is no longer trading at you know two times revenue and you know ten to twelve times EBITDA. It's now trading at you know six times revenue and 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 thirty or forty times EBITDA. And that's kind of how the market has viewed that in, in recent years. And so it, there's been a, a re-rating of how the public markets view pest control. And what that means is there's a re-rating of how the big Pest control companies view the smaller guys because now there's an arbitrage. If we go out and if we're trading at 20 times trailing EBITDA and we pay 10 times for that, it's an accretive deal. Whereas historically, that was never the case. You know, historically, hell, th these things have always sold at kind of five to eight times trailing EBITDA. And somewhere kind of like 90 cents to a, you know, a buck 25 or a buck 30 for years and yet for decades. And now that has changed dramatically in the last five years. It's largely driven by the – I mean every – actually, it's not largely. It is exclusively driven by the public markets. We are, as, as the, the owners of privately held pest control businesses, we are beneficiaries to that. But the dynamics, you know, from a cause and effects perspective, the dynamics take place in the big publicly traded markets. I, I hope I explained that. Okay. In your newsletter, you called – the ceiling. You thought we hit the ceiling. And then our friend, Jim McHale, sold. Mm -hmm. Do you still think it's the ceiling? Because, I mean, for Jimmy to sell, and, I, you know, there's rumors about what he got. Jim always had a number in his head. And for him selling, I imagine he got it. I got I guess I got to kind of eat my words on on calling the top. So you're, you're right. I mean, there's a distinction always, guys, when when deals are announced versus when deals began to work or when the bidding process starts. So that transaction, when I was writing that, that really informed a lot of my opinion. I, I don't know that multiples will get much higher than where they are now. So I, I think we've kind of been, we've hit it, we've hit a top. So I think we've hit the top and I think we've kind of plateaued now into 2019. Um, I, I think that you, you will see an aberration or two. You'll see an outlier pop up. But I think on the whole, I think that we've kind of been at a plateau since the fall of last year. And I think that'll definitely, and, unless there's some sort of external shock, you know, a tanking of the stock market or, or something crazy. I mean, I think that'll probably continue at least through this year. So one of our listeners, Carmen Anchor, Pest Control. Yeah, I know Carmen. Yeah. So he, he asked, do rumors... In, of a recession mean that the multiples should be coming down? Or, I mean, is that really a fact? Because that kind of goes with what you just said, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I personally make a distinction between the capital markets and kind of the real economy. And here's what I mean by that. There, there's all sorts of things going on. I mean, look, in order to kind of diagnose where we are today, I think it's important to think about what has happened historically. So in 
2010, 2011, 2012, we started to see a run-up, albeit small, but we started to see prices increase from what I would call the kind of 2000 to 2010 zone. So we get into 11, numbers are going up. We get into 12, numbers are going up. It, it really started to accelerate about five years ago, you know, somewhere in the kind of the 2013, 2014 window when Andy Ransom the CEO of Renekill looked across the Atlantic, perhaps with a little envy in his eyes, and said, well, why is Rollins trading at such a high multiple? Well, we're a bigger company, we're global, we're less risky. And I, I think he concluded that they are not a majority pest control business. Renekill does hygiene and clean. I mean, they were doing all sorts of stuff. So he said, we need to become more of a comp to Rollins. So at that point, he put his pedal on the metal and said, let's go out and let's buy up North America. And so Rent-A-Kill started to drive up transaction prices in North America. And then um, as that started to go on in 2014, Michael Vigne joined um, Anti-CMX. They had a kind of a change in the guard there over there as the leadership. They bought ISS's portfolio in 14 countries, and they set their eyes on North America. My first deal with them, 2014, and it was in Asia. It was in Singapore. So I met those guys in Singapore. We're working on Asian deals, and they said, we, we're, we're starting to eye the North American market. And they finally jumped in in 2016, and now we have another acquire. So now we have four big, massive, well-capitalized businesses here buying pest control companies. And anti-CMEX entering the market put further pressure on East Coast pricing, on transaction values up and down the Eastern seaboard. And anti-CMEX is based in a country. I was just there two weeks ago in Stockholm. I, um, they're pretty much on a monthly basis. And they, um, they have negative real interest rates. So you, they have negative deposit rates. You put a million bucks into a Swedish bank. And I think right now, as of last week, the the deposit rate was negative 0.1%. So you're guaranteed to lose money by putting it in the bank, which means money's less than free. It's a hot potato. If you don't use it, you lose it. So uh, I think that has driven a lot of activity on anti-CMX's part. Uh, Rent-a-kills borrowing money at, at 80, I think their last bond offering, their five-year bond was at about 85 basis points, which means it's less than 1%. It's 0.85%. So it, I mean, these guys are, are, are playing with funny money, and it's largely driven by what these central banks around the world are doing. And um, historically, I mean, if interest rates are, you know, at, in, in kind of a, you know, you got LIBOR at 350 and you've got interest rates kind of in the 5 6% range, now all of a sudden those get forced down to zero or negative. A whole ton of projects that wouldn't have made sense under higher interest rates now make sense. And the transaction, right? You know, the value of a pest control business is kind of the inverse of um, how can I say this in layman's terms? The the value of a pest control business increases as the cost of capital decreases, right? The money they just like a house, right? If you can go out and borrow something at one percent versus five percent, you can borrow a lot more at one percent than you can at five percent to make the cash flow work. And that's what we've seen. So to Carmen's question, I'm not as concerned about a recession. I mean, look, I, I personally believe that Europe and the United States are already in a recession. I think the changes in the tax law and I think central bank activity is basically masking all sorts of fundamental and structural issues with the, these economies. But I think the economies are already contracting. I'm not particularly worried about 
the actual recession and the real economy, because at the end of the day, the central banks will continue to blow bubbles and those go into financial assets first. So I think owners will be protected until inflation starts to trickle out into the into the real economy, which which will happen at some point. But just no one knows when. So two follow up questions. One, if I understood all that correctly, to a certain extent, egos and money being cheap is what drove the multiples to a certain extent. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I think that's a fair statement, Joe. I mean, I, I think that's right. It, it, it's cheap money and it's 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 foreign firms trying to get into the United States. And I think you're going to start to see in a matter of months here, you're going to start to see the, the reverse happening. So you'll, you're going to start to see the U.S. firms accelerate growth in markets outside the United States. About the inflation trickling out and, and just when, what should owners, what should we be looking for? You know, I think that, I mean, I think the best advice for anyone that owns a pest control business is really, when you think about the ownership of your business, so you're a private equity investor, really, right? If you're an owner, you're typically wearing two hats. You're you're a manager, so you're managing the business, and you're also a private equity investor. And so now you own the stock in a business that is probably trading at its all-time high, and it has been. In recent months, so the question now is: You really all of these things. I mean, pest control transactions were always typically driven by life events. You know, we just talked about a buddy of ours who who had a life event, right? And so, the life events are death and divorce and sickness. So historically, multiples were always very steady. You get divorced, you got to sell. Fine. Somebody kills over, you got to sell. You get a terminal illness, you sell or whatever. You know, you're going to retire. But in recent years, I mean, look at guys like Jimmy. I mean, Jim's in his early 50s. I mean, you look across the industry and you got a lot of young guys doing this, which was never the case. I mean, it was never the case. I, I mean, all of our clients of, of, of old were literally old. These guys were all – a lot of these guys were 70s, 80s, and you know, it was time for them to retire. And I, and I think that if I'm a – if I own a pest control business, I look out and say, okay, my stock is trading at an all-time high now. But if I'm only 45 years old or 50 years old and I plan on staying this in, in, in it for another 10 or 20 years and I really like what I'm doing and I'm having fun growing my business and at some point I'm going to have a business that's going to kick off cash while I can be out on a boat, then I'm going to stay the course. Um, I, I think the guys who look at it and might be burned out or want to do something different, a lot of these guys want to do something different, right? They want to get into real estate investing or they want to open up a different type of business. I mean, I think you talk to any guy that owns a pest control business, what are the two things he hates the most? He hates customers and he hates employees, right? So like you want to, you know, you want to go out and do something else. So I mean, the first pest control business I ever sold, the the owner told me, Paul, I need to find a business that has no employees and no customers. That's what he wanted. You want to stay the course and you don't worry about market aberrations now. You don't worry about, you know, your stock is up now. Does it go down in a year? Who cares? I'm in it for 10 or 20 years. And if the recession happens, I'll live through it like I've lived through other recessions. And I'll have this discussion in 10 or 20 years. If you're starting to approach the timeline where you're like, man, I want to be out in the next five years. Well, uh, then I think you got to take what's going on right now very, very seriously. And, you know, Joe, when we talk about and we talk about multiples, it's always difficult to have this discussion with your audience because I don't know what your audience looks like. And it's, there are so many factors that impact valuation, one that you have no control over or very little control that actually is very real is the actual location of your business. 
I mean, literally, your geography can impact your value. Are you in a franchise zone for the big acquirers, right? Like if you're in one of these rural areas in the middle of the country, Service Master and Rollins might have franchises there and can't buy you. So you lose two bidders there. Are you from Maine to Florida? Are you up and down the East Coast? Well, you've got Renekill, Rollins, Service Master, and Antisemix. You've got all four of the big players. You don't have that in California. You don't have that in Illinois. So those the, the competitive dynamics of the bid process – based on geography, have an impact. The size of your business, your capabilities. Do you have unique capabilities? Are you a commercial player? Are you a residential player? How much one-times are you doing? Are you doing a lot of termite or no termite? Are you doing dry wood fume or not? I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. Um, but I found, you know, a lot of times these owners are, in recent years, you know, they've benefited from the market and they've also been at the right, right place at the right time. I think Jim was a direct beneficiary of being in, in one of the most desirable areas of the country with four large acquirers that had been gunning for him for years. He had that market up there cornered and just did a phenomenal job. And, and the thing that stuck with what you wrote about that he, when he reached that certain level, he got an internal CFO. We've actually been talking about that, that it, it made sense. Somebody that I work with now used to work for McHale. He said when the CFO came on, he watched him trim the fat internally. So that, I, I thought that was a great point. So Jimmy, not only did he have a phenomenal business model up there, then he brought someone in to just tighten it up. Like exactly what you wrote in your newsletter. I will say something on that point, and I'm glad you bring it up because, look, they bought that business, you know, kind of bought their old man out. You know, I think it was doing about a million bucks. And, and Jim grew that thing and I don't remember if it was up to $5 million or whatever, but he was using like an outside bookkeeper and an accountant who I think did a great job for them at the end of the day. But he got to the point where he said, I need real-time financial data. I need somebody who's actually a part of the organization who can – it's one thing to use an outside accountant. Like we have an accountant, accountant for our firm that he gives us advice or whatever. It's another thing to have somebody who's in the day-to-day -day and actually can make real-time financial decisions. And that was one of the best – I mean that was one of the best moves. He made and, and and I see that consistently across the board. We have another client who, in the last few years, went out and said, "We're going to spend more money than we want, but we're going to get somebody who has the experience of being a, a, a CFO at a hundred and fifty plus million dollar business, even though we do a fraction of that. But we want somebody who can set up financial systems, who can really think about." KPIs that we can use. And, and they did that. And, and I would encourage, build the infrastructure before you need it. Do it early. Now, if you're doing a million bucks a year in revenue and you're an early in your company life cycle, sometimes you got to play fast and loose. Sometimes you got to focus on the customer and focus on marketing. So you use the cigar box. The money comes in the cigar box. You take out what you need. You pay your bills and whatever's left, that's yours. And that works while you're in, in the industry, getting a gut feel for how things work. But if you're getting ready to blow it up and you really want to grow it, finding somebody on the inside, and, and I see it, and I see it consistently across this industry, the guys with strong internal accounting, finance, bookkeeping are the ones that really have a great pulse in their business. Hey, this is Ed Sheehan for Mastermind Business Academy. Join our startup class. It is perfect for you if you're starting a new pest control company or if you've been in business under three years. Finally ready to get serious about building a successful company from your side job? You know, you're always looking to get more market share or add-ons. This would be a great add-on service in plumbing, landscaping, and cleaning companies. When you sign up, 
Here's what you'll get. The exact steps you need to take to start a successful pest control company. Our checklist of everything to include in your startup. Customizable contracts and proposals. Just add your logo. Protocols for guaranteed results. Employee management tools. Pricing tools and salary calculators. Accounting, investing, exclusive discounts, and money-saving strategies. Our detailed process on how to find bulletproof growth and built-in customers. A huge list of potential clients and locations to get you going. All for residential and commercial accounts, plus one-on-one coaching calls with myself and Joe. Once again, thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. Check out our website at colonyconfidential.com. Until we meet again, God bless you. I'm Eric Ray, co-founder and CEO of Podium. A few years back, my dad called with a problem. Despite having tons of happy customers at his local tire shop, only a handful of angry ones left online reviews. He was stuck with an online reputation that didn't match how customers really felt. And he wasn't alone. Local businesses everywhere are still being held back by outdated technology, leading to misleads, lost customers, and wasted time. We quickly learned that people would rather just send a text, a Facebook message, or an Instagram message. Anything but having to call, get put on hold, or play phone tag. With Podium, getting more reviews, capturing leads, and keeping customers coming back can all be done through messaging. It makes interacting at every step of the customer journey as easy as sending a quick message. And when you interact the way customers prefer, you quickly become the business they prefer. See for yourself how over 40,000 businesses like yours have given themselves an unfair advantage with Podium. Visit podium.com slash XM for a free demo and get 10% off when you start. That's podium.com slash XM.